This podcast is about the Phoenix Club, and it's a very um, durable and uh, material part of my human past, and it's become kind of big business now through the uh, movie, the extremely successful and I think really good movie, The Social Network. And uh, I had kept this uh, part of... uh, my uh, curriculum vitae under wraps for so long because uh, at first I used to think I was ashamed of it because it had to do with exclusion and uh, ran counter to the great uh, scriptural um, emphasis that in Christ there is no east or west, there is no male, female, bond or free, and uh, rich or poor, Jew and Gentile, and that any kind of uh, association with an exclusive or supposedly exclusive uh, group of people was somehow counter to uh, my Christian confession. But what I found out over the years, what it was really much more about, I was afraid uh, to talk about something that was not only innocent, uh, but actually delightful, fun, life-affirming, and ultimately, as I'll report, somewhat religious. I was afraid and normal. I was afraid to talk about this chapter really because of something akin to class warfare. Whenever I would, uh, it came out in uh, processes of uh, candidacy for parishes that I'd had attended Harvard College, in most places I had to keep that kind of under wraps, especially if they were in certain parts of the country where that was considered snobbish or hoity-toity or your nose in the air, and it really wasn't, because that's just what it was. That's a part of your life, whether you, if you've done anything, it's a part of your life. You you, you can't uh, you can't pretend it never happened, and, and uh, people who want you, what does Aaron Neville say in the great song by Bob Dylan, uh, where I'm wanted is where I'll be. Uh, if if they want you, they want you, and a part of your life inexorably and undeniably is this, that, or the other thing. But uh, then more recently, I had to cover up, uh, cover it up because it was associated with kind of a, 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 a kind of elitism, uh, which we had no control over, but an elitism that was judged very negatively. And what I thought at first was kind of a kind of theological prohibition against uh, uh, Harvard College uh, in uh, places that I was working. Uh, Working, I began to see that there was more to it than that, and it was there was a, a, a quieter uh, and and really uh, not nice aspect of it. There was there was often a tremendous envy uh, for whatever people projected onto that. Now, uh, therefore, you can understand all the more why one would keep hidden what appears to be, but is now a very hot feature of one's undergraduate life. Now the uh, uh, I, the 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 Phoenix Club and the Harvard Final Clubs were in the late 1960s and early 1970s when I was a a, a very uh, a happy part of uh, a heedless part of uh, this organization in Cambridge, Mass. Uh, was um, was really a kind of a form of uh, adolescent dissent. Uh, people that see it as a kind of enrollment in the in the establishment uh, don't um, understand what it what it was really like. Now, final clubs at Harvard tend to be more a statement about coolness. How cool are you? And if you're really cool or regarded as cool, you are punched. The larger word is rushed, but the word in uh, Harvard slang is punched. You are punched by a final club because you're cool. Ethnicity and race and uh, prep school versus public school background and parentage and even money, uh, uh, these uh, things uh, are no longer accounted for because 
the clubs have in fact uh, kept up with the changed face of Harvard. What is now uh, the governing uh, uh, aspect of it is are you a cool person? Are you an interesting person? Are you a funny person? Are you an ironic person? Are you someone other people would like to spend a lot of fun off time with just uh, uh, chewing the fat and telling jokes and being conversational and being witty? Uh, That is far more important than anything resembling color of skin or racial background or connection with some putative Harvard Brahmin past, which is in the very distant past. The clubs have, in fact, kept up with the times. And uh, even when I was a member of the Phoenix Clubs, the final clubs were were changing radically. There was, uh, although the preppy aspect was very present, uh, the the number of uh, members who crossed over from all sorts of backgrounds and experiences was vast, and there was no uh, um, lines drawn except a line of conviviality. And that is uh, uh, because the 60s were a cascading time of intense seriousness, you know, um, about ROTC, about, uh, about concepts, about ideology. The, the river of life, the Charles River, was moving. It was a massive flood of ideological thinking. An organization that valued conviviality, irony, and brides had revisited, and dressing up in evening clothes on a Thursday night or talking a lot about Oscar Wilde and the bon mot of, of sort of mid-adolescent fencing relationships, both with men and to some extent on the side with women. These are all male associations and we don't need to get into that. That's a given. That's the way they were. Whether that's right or not, that's the way they were. Uh, And um, there was another text also that I was not aware of underneath some of that, but um, that was there too. But my point is that the clubs were actually a kind of form of dissidence. They were a quiet, delightful form of dissidence, just as any grouping of people is trying to distinguish itself from the wider group. In many ways, the final clubs were a form of outsiderness in the Harvard College of of 1969, 70, 71, 72, and 73, when I was involved for three years. The the outsider character of the clubs, because all of life is a ping-pong back and forth between people who regard themselves as outsiders and people who regard themselves as insiders. And if the truth were known, and here I speak as a pastoral person, the truth were known, most people regard themselves as outsiders. Even members of the most inward and exclusive groups, you'll actually discover when you talk to them in their reality that they regard themselves as outsiders. I first discovered this in my ministry at Grace Church in New York City when a an extremely beautiful uh, model and a young uh, woman who became part of the uh, church um, opened up to me one day on a subway and said how terribly much she felt she was ugly, fat, and gross. And in fact, she was a a successful and extremely beautiful, by the world's terms, exquisitely beautiful uh, person. She regarded herself as an outsider. And I then saw that outsiderness is a condition of the mind. It's a total eclipse of the heart, to quote Jim Steinman. Now, 
the uh, Phoenix Club, uh, as I said, was in fact a form of dissonance. Let me tell you a little bit about how it worked, uh, and it still works that way. And if you see the movie The Social Network, uh, the um, the Phoenix Club envelope in embossed stationery from Shreve Crump and Low, or as we used to call it, Heave Lunch and Below, uh, the embossed stationery under the dorm room um, through the crack of the door late at night with the invitation to the punching function, uh, the party, the sexuality of which is heavily exaggerated, uh, and certainly in our day. Uh, but nevertheless, the tone and the drugs were not present, although we were very well fueled by alcohol. Uh, the uh, seeds of future alcoholism uh, were very uh, close to the surface of the earth in uh, the Phoenix Club. Uh, we were fueled by substance, alcohol in this case, and we were thinking about girls, although not everyone was thinking about girls. Uh, but uh, the uh, the basic sort of uh, um, spirit of the initiation and uh, selection process is captured well and, to my money, uh, with, uh, I just have to say, and I'm sure every one of my generation of the Phoenix Club just has to watch the social network and just with open mouths, can you believe that, that they're showing this in an international uh, success and Oscar-rated movie? Well, uh, what would happen <clears throat> is you'd uh, receive under your door, uh, usually in the sophomore year, in my case in the uh, junior year, you'd, uh, because I was a transfer from somewhere else and came in for the junior and senior year of Harvard College, <clears throat> you'd receive this embossed invitation under the door and you were invited to a punching function, which in those days would be in the guest room on Mount Auburn Street, where the old, uh, beautiful uh, brick, uh, colonial-style clubhouse, purpose-built and very beautiful, uh, was standing. And you'd go and you'd meet some people and uh, uh, your immediate thought was, these are great guys. Uh, the reason was, um, for me, is that the members of the Phoenix Club were people with whom I could be myself. I could actually speak in a conversational, ironic tone without having to translate. I was constantly used to having to pull my punches conversationally, and uh, especially because people wouldn't get irony. They would take irony personally. If you made a pers a, an, an ironic comment or a kind of uh, observation in what you thought was kind of a Boswellian or Johnsonian tone, uh, people would be offended because they thought you were criticizing them, and there may have been residual anger underneath it. There always or often is sarcasm and irony. But the people that I met in the Phoenix Club, and they included some of the most remarkable and delightful uh, friends of mine that I've ever had at the very top of my list, uh, people some of whom I uh, kept in touch with. But in the Christian subculture I entered just a few years later, I was embarrassed about the kind of <clears throat> repartee which had uh, uh, characterized this group of friends, and I tended to slip away from associations with them and got new friends and acquaintances, but all of these were tended to be co-belligerents rather than just delightful people, and I kept this under wraps for over 30 years. And uh, when I would, uh, you'd, you'd be able to say, uh, from my point of view, jokes, and people got them. You'd say ironic, and, and they'd come right back at you. Uh, we First thing, I met a tall fellow who uh, uh, I absolutely loved, and he has become now a, a very well-known uh, uh, professor in a field that is highly uh, of great interest in the world today. And uh, he started off the conversation that night at the first punching function in the guest room of 72 Mount Auburn Street. He said, he said well, he said, uh, uh, let me tell you about the 10 most boring things of 1969. 
well, obviously there were many boring things in the year 1969, which was, remember, the summer of Kent State, the summer of love, and the whole world was heedlessly going towards one direction. And anyone who sort of had pulled up stakes or uh, was a little bit more into um, Edmund Burke or uh, had uh, sort of uh, just by nature was going to kind of contest the governing ideology of Adam's house or whatever it was, we, we, we were sort of open to what might be the 10 most boring things. And he started by saying, well, he said, of course, first there's the Paris Commune of 1870. Well, that was a hoot because in those days, the kind of underwriting historical <clears throat> kind of anchor to all campus protest was the Paris Commune of 1870, whatever that exactly was. We knew, but my gosh, you know, Les Miserables, Street Fighting Man, it all tied into the kind of Rolling Stones thing of fighting the Massachusetts National Guard, National Guard off the Harvard Yard in the spring of 69, uh, or the uh, occupation of Massachusetts Hall. And um, good Lord, the, the, the Paris Commune of 1870. Well, that just, uh, that was just it. And then he said, and then the second, let me give you, and then he gave a whole lot of examples, but he said one of the second uh, ones would uh, be the use of the word obscene to attend to any phenomenon that does not relate to sexuality. And of course, if you remember those eras or were there or were not, you'll know that the word obscene was suddenly used for the military industrial complex or anything having to do with the war in Vietnam or anything having to do with colonialism or anything having to do with Robert McNamara. So the word obscene had become transferred from, you know, Tropic of Cancer or My Secret Life or something like that. It had become transferred to massive sociological uh, uh, attribution and predicate. And he was absolutely right. And I said, this is so funny. This guy has got... He's got under the skin of a phenomenon. This is a delightful form of dissidence. And if you're looking for a form of dissidence, this was one. It was not really very particularly conspicuously countercultural to be part of the, uh, of the uh, Students for a Democratic Society at Harvard College or any place in the year uh, 1969, 70, 71. It was extremely cultural to talk about the 10 most boring things and emphasize the use of the word obscene for anything other than something sexual. Well, uh, you immediately liked this guy, at least I did, and I, I, I found myself, there was a chord that was touched, and one after another after another, and the Phoenix Club at that time also, it was under attack. Remember, this was not a time when, when everybody wanted to join the Phoenix Club because of the social network, or as uh, as the writer of the book The Accidental Billionaires, uh, Billionaires who's done his homework, uh, uh, writes about the Phoenix Club. He says the, the Phoenix Club, although perhaps not the most exclusive of the Harvard Final Clubs, uh, was the social king of the hill in Harvard undergraduate life. And golly, you know, social king of the hill? Well, I mean, we may have thought ourselves uh, fancifully something along those lines, but that was self-regarded uh, because uh, if anything, people would, you know, if you wore a coat and tie with a um, blazer or a kind of herringbone jacket around uh, the campus, people actually spat on you. you. You became automatically a projected incarnation of everything that was to be avoided and actually to be hated. So to talk about it today, then, as the social king of the hill, well, what a joke, but it was the Phoenix Club, and we were there, and this is what it is. So you'd be invited, and you'd find these delightful people. One of the people I most uh, uh, appreciated, and I can't, uh, I, I, I can use his name because he's sadly d d dead. Uh, his name was Paige Grubb, Paige Farnsworth Grubb. He died a couple years ago, and uh, uh, under conditions that had actually intersected with the Episcopal 
church culture wars and were terribly upsetting to me. And I'm not uh, so upsetting that I could do a, a, a series of five podcasts on that. But uh, the church, when the church gets involved in something, um, often because of the tremendous weight of the serious ideology connected with God's work, whether you're on the left of that or the right of that, wherever you are, seriousness can impede and destroy what is otherwise normal, fun, and humane. And Paige Grubb's dying and his funeral, uh, in my opinion, was uh, particularly uh, tainted by uh, because of uh, other aspects of it that had nothing to do with Paige, uh, by um, aspects of the Episcopal Church uh, culture wars, and it was quite disillusioning. But Paige, as he was then, was one of the most beautiful young men, delightful young men, refined, funny, civilized, and yet deeply compassionate and kindly. He was the president of the Phoenix Club, Paige Grubb, and his great gift was he wrote the uh, music and lyrics of the Hasty Pudding shows. Now, the Hasty Pudding, that's a whole other episode, but in those days, with its clubhouse very nearby, and we would often go for their whiskey sours and have wonderful uh, dinners midweek, and uh, who will ever forget the Hasty Pudding, had an annual uh, uh, musical play that was the extreme end of transvestitism, because the Harvard male undergraduates would dress up as women, sexy women, old women, but mostly sexy women, doing all sorts of chorus numbers, and they'd do a kind of uh, um, a transvestite musical that was hilarious, absolutely hilarious, and Paige wrote one of the best of all. It's called Ryan stones in the rough, and it was, I believe, we're talking now about the spring of 1971. I'm certain of it. And he wrote others as well. And you'd have a, a member, a guy, I think he was a member of the Owl Club, but he might have been a member of the Fly Club, maybe the Gas, but he would he was all naked except for a wig and lipstick. And he was in a bathtub, and he was playing the part of a Hollywood 19, a sort of 30s star, like, you know, Joan Crawford type of thing. And he was having a bath and with this extraordinarily sort of Busby Berkeley number of everybody dancing around him, all of our friends as it turned out, Paige had written a number called Je n'ai pas peur de plaisir. Oh, no. <clears throat> and it was a torch song of ironic wit about pleasure and sensuosity uh, that was uh, full of just absolute, just double, triple, quadruple entendres. And Paige, who was a, a rather devout Episcopalian and a tremendous musician and a person of very soft manners and soft-spokenness, and he was well up on Evelyn Waugh, nevertheless, or and he was a musician of the highest quality, and he played all night every night while the while the hasty pudding theatricals were going on and he, he even put me into the musical uh, one night in an extremely uh, a way I'll never forget and uh, Paige uh, was a memorable member and uh, anyone who is listening to this who remembers those times will remember Paige and many many others uh, and you have this world a little bit of the Whit Stillman world you might call it um, and yet with the Phoenix Club it combined sort of art met uh, preppiness met um, alcohol met uh, a little bit of uh, Brideshead Revisited, more on that later met beauty, met uh, um jokes of triple entendre, met a group of delightful, and it turned out very smart people because uh, several of my uh, fellow members of the Phoenix Club uh, were summa cum laudes in everything from uh, from uh, the math sciences and history of science uh, to um, 
uh, to, to, to fields uh, far afield. Uh, I can't say that the Phoenix Club helped our academic performance, uh, but uh, some were so gifted that they uh, produced summa cum laude degrees anyway, uh, not yours truly, who, although he was studying Hellenism and Christian origins, um, spent too much time with the Phoenix Club. You'd be invited, there'd be a second round, you'd get a second invitation if people liked you, and it had nothing to do in those days with, we didn't see it as being past muster in terms of credentials or look. We saw it in terms of, is this a group of people that liked you and did you like them? Now remember, let's not uh, get, we could get very sociological here and we could get really up on our uppers and say that this was exclusionary by definition. Well, there is an element of any group that is self-selecting does have within itself the the seed of self-selection and judgment and self-righteousness. That is undeniable and that's why I left it behind in many ways, at least uh, in the public persona, uh, because, although I treasured it inwardly, but never talked about it, ever. Uh, but uh, in fact, just think of any high school you've ever been in, any group of people you've ever been in. Who do you, your friends are who you hang around with. They're the ones you have dinner with. They're the ones you sit with at lunch. They're the ones you sit with in the, in the stands at the Friday night game or Saturday afternoon game or the tea dances or whatever it is. Always you start with the people you know. Now, if... If the process of growing up uh, works, and it can work, it can work in a Harvard Final Club, you meet the friends of your friends. And the friends of your friends are not your friends. They, they become your friends, but they're new, they're different. And inevitably then the friends of your friends who, who have other friends, and you grow and you meet all sorts of people. And in fact, I met all kinds of individuals and backgrounds and interests and ethnicities through the identities, as we say, which I don't really believe in. I don't really believe that identities are not just a kind of a, a very arbitrary set of sort of shreds and patches which come together in different forms and conglomerations and composites as time goes on. But that's another a podcast. But we met many, many different people, had many different experiences, went to many different places. And in the punching functions, if you made the second round, you then went on an outing. And the outing was usually at some old fart who was actually delightful, some old fart who had a house out in Belmont or a house in Beverly Farms or something like that. And you went to this beautiful place. That there, Then you were sort of all of a sudden in Oliver Barrett, the fourth territory, and you went to some beautiful place. Remember, Love Story had been filmed in the, uh, as I remember it, it was in 1960. 68 and 69, uh, and, and maybe uh, early 1970 at uh, Harvard. So that ethos really did exist, although it's magnified and uh, very much stratified in love story. But Eric Siegel was around. He was there. He was in the fly club. You saw him. And uh, this... Um, uh, this uh, 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 mystique would be carried out through an outing that was delightful and fun. And what happened is you not only sort of were impressed by the settings, but you were really impressed by the people. You liked them. You enjoyed them. For better or for worse, you began to have an affinity. What is elective affinities? Let's not discount Goethe here. Now, we found that uh, uh, the, 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 out, the outings kind of sealed it, and you inevitably wanted to be part of this people. And gradually you found that they wanted to be part of you. Uh, no one who was invited to the second round or the third round really didn't want to join and didn't get punched and finally elected with very few exceptions because it was a matter of it was kind of the gravitation of, of the chemistry if I can mix a metaphor finally after a number of other functions and dinners at places like the Lockover Cafe which was kind of a Somerset Mom style Paris Bistro and I think still exists but it's not quite what it once was it's not as hot, it was very hot in those days, place to really go and be seen and, be, and, and have fun and get drunk and um, we would have these events at Lockover's 
and other restaurants in Boston or at the, the you know, the downtown hotels occasionally for a Sunday brunch. And uh, after early communion at Christchurch, Cambridge, because in fact, many of these people were, were more uh, observant than you'd ever imagined. But you, it was not, there was no atheism in the club, but religion was not a part of it except by a kind of extension of aesthetic and historic legacy and interest and respect to some extent. Now, we um, finally, uh, there was a final dinner, which was, would be held at a, at usually at a, at a, a kind of club of renown, a, a social club downtown, and that was great, and everybody wore sashes and boutonnieres and their Phoenix Club medals, which we didn't yet have, medallions, I should say, and ties, and it was very, very impressive and delightful, and people would tell dirty jokes after the, after the last course. You'd close the door, and people would get up and tell extremely ironic and sometimes long but delightful, old-fashioned, dirty jokes. Now, today you can't do this, or at least it would be considered awful. But fashions change. Uh, it was not awful to us. It was funny. It was delightful. It, was, it, ex- it explained reality, and yet with a light touch. That you always had a music like Bye Bye Blackbird, or someone tinkling on the piano, or someone singing very well, or Gilbert and Sullivan suffused it. It was always that there was a touch of, of fun and delight. And as they say in the movie The Social Network, I think Eduardo Saverin says to Mark Zuckerberg or to somebody, he said, he said, for heaven's sake, we're in college. I mean, give me a break. We're in college. I mean, let people in college be in college. And when attitude, when ideological attitude about identities or ethnicities or identities or gender or semiotics or, um, 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 you know, perspectivalism and all the different things that symbolism, all the different schools of thought that rule in academia today, when they get uh, carried over into undergraduate anger, um, which is really always... uh, always over the question, will he sleep with me? Does he want to sleep with me? Will she sleep with me? Is she is she interested in me? Does she like me? Do I like her? She's gorgeous. She's dropped dead. All the various things that that will never change. And so when you bring ideological attitude into college, you you mess it up. What is supposed to be and can be a delightful, fun, and actually a growing, cutting edge experience for the human heart and the human self. Um, now uh, the jokes of the Phoenix were delightful and funny, and we had a blast. And um, we would then be elected, and you'd have uh, suddenly some of your friends uh, from the Phoenix Club, seniors appearing uh, in uh, in morning coats and uh, white tie, on a, or, or uh, dressed to the absolute like they were going to some very beautiful wedding. They'd uh, knock on your door at uh, 8.30 in the morning after they'd been up all night uh, um, having elections and uh, they'd bring you milk punch in a Phoenix Club silver beaker at 8 o'clock in the morning and you were in your pajamas and you said, oh my gosh. And then later on in the day, you'd be required or invited to submit written uh, uh, accession to the invitation to join and everybody did. Some went to other clubs. Now, my roommate and I both uh, were punched by the Phoenix and we both joined. And why was he my roommate? I mean, he's my roommate because I'd known him since I was 10 years old. Now, you can say all you want about, you know, we want to break down these associations, but you can't really, you can't make something into what it's not. Uh, Cousins is brilliant on this question in Guard of Honor. He's constantly talking about people who want to make reality into what they think it ought to be rather than accepting reality what it is what it is people are comfortable with people 
whom they've known. And so my roommate, whom I'd known since he was in uh, 10 years old, and we'd gone through school forever, and our third roommate was also someone who had been attended the school we attended, and we'd known him for almost as long. No wonder that we would want to be in the same final club. Uh, we were comfortable. We met many others, but we started with people that we knew. Now our third roommate ended uh, punched another, and he, he diverted to another and had a great time in his world. Uh, but that's how it started. Starts. I mean, am I really off base here? Uh, or do you not value people that have been part of your life? Why is that? Is that because you made a sociological judgment when you were nine? No, you were nine and everything was vividly real to you. So you met someone when you were nine who was vividly real to you. And that person became uh, became part of you, you, your life, which is holy ground. And here I'm thinking Thomas Carlyle, I'm thinking Ralph Waldo Emerson, I'm thinking Goethe, I'm thinking the transcendentalists, I'm thinking Jack Kerouac for that matter. Your life is all you have. Your life is what you know. So if you've known someone for 20 years or 30 years, he or she is part of your life. You are indissolubly connected through memory and organic connection of that, which is what you know. So if you join or become comfortable in a group where you have a couple people like that, that's always going to be the hook. And to run ideologically in the face of that is to go against nat natural affections, male and female, natural affections. And the older you get, I'm sure you've found this, you find yourself more tied with people that you once knew long ago. This is a very important fact that we, we lose if we constantly log roll into it, imported attitudes and concepts from whatever the current fashion is. Because by the way, fashion changes. I mean, Harvard College uh, cast off ROTC in the 60s and early 70s because ROTC represented the Vietnam War and Dow Chemical. You know, ROTC was cast off because it represented war. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Listen, y'all, a war. Uh, our, ROTC was, was, was thrown off campus. Now it's been very warmly welcomed back because of the uh, the uh, formal end uh, to a policy that relates to gender and sexuality and um, don't ask, don't tell. It's been welcomed back on the basis of a of a, of a of a very important and meaningful current relation and understanding of relations between men and relations between women and all the permutations of sexuality, but it it it, it those who who saw it cast off because of its oh, aggression in relation to um, Phnom Penh have to say to oneself, well, this, isn't this interesting? It's being welcomed back because the Department of Defense has changed its policy on human sexuality, which is great. But what is it really about? What is ROTC about? It's really about military service. And if you're a pacifist or you're against overseas aggressive wars and, and drones and, and political assassinations and uh, the CIA and uh, fighting wars that seem to have nothing to do with you thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away, um, if you still hold those views, you wouldn't ro want ROTC back no matter what the Department of Defense did in relationship to what is most important now. So what we're saying now is that ideas that are important to people today are uh, vastly more important that, to people than ide or to Harvard University than ideas that were very important then. It's a fascinating uh, picture. Now, I'm going to go on a little longer than usual today because I want to tell my whole story. So if you want to turn this off now and, and – um, uh, 
come back to it at the end of your run or come back to it next week, that's fine. I've just gone about 30 minutes and I, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the Phoenix Club because uh, uh, what it was and what it is uh, and some of these notes I've made about uh, association, dissidence and adolescence, uh, I want to carry them a little further. <clears throat> now, I became a member of the Phoenix Club and before you knew it, because it, it, there, were, there were hippie preppies in it, there were stoned people in it, I, I've seen drugs taken in it, um, but mostly I've seen a tremendous amount of alcohol in the form of stingers and martinis. And I mean, one of our members became the author of, I think, the finest work on the martini in American life. He was a, actually, he was interested in something quite different academically, but he produced a major book on this. And, um, martinis, stingers, whiskey sours, all sorts of other drinks, the Bellini, you know, you, you, you name it. Um, it was fueled by the delight of alcohol through our bar that was, uh, the bar was, uh, absolutely like a room you might imagine in the Titanic. Who will ever forget it? I haven't been to the Phoenix Club building for many years. I hope it's still there. I certainly know that it's similar because in the book, The Accidental Mil Billionaires, the author who's obviously done his research, perhaps he's been inside the building, has uh, uh, describes the main lounge and the staircases of the Phoenix Club exactly as they are, although he makes a very funny comment. He says, uh, upstairs uh, in the, uh, there were top secret, in the top secret uh, upstairs rooms. And I lived in one of those rooms for six months and um, uh, listening to the OJs uh, on uh, my little radio love train. Uh, I lived in one of those rooms and to call it a top secret upstairs room is to give it, it was a mess for heaven's sake. Um, yes, it overlooked Mount Auburn Street and Elsie's and all that, but it was an absolute mess. It cracks me up to think of what does he think they're like? Um, top secret they weren't uh but nevertheless uh, uh he captures the way the building actually looks we were initiated and that's a whole another podcast which i won't talk about uh and uh then later on i became the punching chairman myself i was the punching chairman of the phoenix sk club for uh one season and uh, uh one and a half seasons and it was a stitch it was a hoot and of course to say that we were going to only take 20 of the 200 who we had selected to be punched it would be a complete misunderstanding Understanding. We would be extremely happy to get 12 of the 25 or 30 we punched. Because remember, that was an era when the tide of of conformity and of social change was, uh, whether you want to call it conformity, whether you want to call it inspiration, it may well have been. It probably both was so anti-authoritarian and so anti the tenor of, of the Phoenix Club as it thought itself to be that uh, what we were doing, in fact, turned out turns out to have been a form of adolescent dissidence that was uh, quite charming. We never, uh, people didn't like us, but we, we never went out and demonstrated against them. We just lived with it. But it was an odd and bizarre and, to some extent, uh, embarrassing form of adolescent uh, dissent. Now, I want to just talk about uh, uh, one uh, other uh, uh, aspect of of the uh, of the thing at one plus one uh, humor the humor of the uh, banter and the back and forth and the bon mot and the conversation as I said fueled by stiff drinks and in connection with the life of the hasty pudding institute of 1777 or whatever exactly its title used to be and is we um that building was sold uh, we uh 
we, 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 we had, we had so much fun. You didn't have to check yourself. You didn't have to constantly, uh, uh, ask yourself if you were being judged for unrighteousness. There were no Puritans around. You could say what came to mind and everybody appreciated it and came right back at you. And if you, if you, uh, if you were a fool or uh, said things that were highly platitudinous, you were very quickly put in your place and you learned, uh, a little bit about the fun of originality, but, uh, and, and sort of marking one up on the wall for your, uh, your uh, um, um, wit. Now, um, the humor in the Phoenix Club was part and parcel with it, and there was another aspect to it. There was a, there was a gay subtext to a lot of it, which I didn't have the experience or even the antennae to to take in, receive, hear, or say. We had a, a member of the club who was highly uh, loved, uh, and I punched him and uh, got him elected over a little bit of resistance, only because he he dressed up and and uh, um, regarded himself as Oscar Wilde. He was a Harvard undergraduate who um, dressed up and carried on with a cane, a silver-headed cane, and spats, and the proper shoes, and makeup, lipstick, and uh, some pancake on his front, and the hairstyle, the occasional hat, and the ascot, and the um, handkerchiefs, and the style. He had memorized just about everything that Oscar Wilde had ever said or written, and his entire persona was kind of to be a dressed-up um, um, mannequin of Oscar Wilde and he was delightful and funny and he always came back at you with something that was that was sort of he out wild and wild wild in 1970 and I just thought he was fabulous and we punched him and he became um, part of our club and we just loved him now I lost touch with him and years ago I was in a London bookshop and uh, in the art section and picked out a uh, a booklet of uh, I saw his name on an art book and I picked it out and it was he and he had it was a series of portraits uh, we would I think call them probably uh, of, of a homosexual lifestyle these portraits of young men um, that were fabulous. I mean, he was obviously an extremely gifted portraitist in oil, and he wrote a little bit about it, and I looked him up, and then I found out that he'd become a bit of a figure in London. No wonder. He was a fantastically delightful conversationalist, uh, and um, you never forgot him. And uh, then it began explain. I began to realize, you know, there were some other things going on that I just didn't have the eyes to see, and a couple of people took me aside later and said, you know, um, all of this was going on under, over, under, sideways, down, and and uh, uh, I learned a little bit, uh, and uh, it just filled out the picture. The Phoenix Club was very diverse, and uh, the uh, sort of common ground was the humor, ironic humor that you no longer had to muzzle the ox while he was tramping out the grain, and uh, you could be funny, and uh, also you could sort of connect with, uh, with uh, the uh, uh, Lord Marchmain's son, played by Anthony Andrews in the famous BBC miniseries in Brideshead Revisited. And uh, the last thing I'll say is that the... Uh the sort of text for the Phoenix Club in those days, and uh, the the cool text, and it's I feel certain that it's changed now, but you can see the social network. Nevertheless, it was a group of people you liked. I just loved these guys, with no exceptions that I can remember. Once you got it, once you got once you went with the flow, you found that everybody was interesting, even if a few people were sort of uh, were sort of uh, 
weren't necessarily to your taste. Uh, you, you had this incredibly delightful alcohol-fueled uh, kind of bomo world. But uh, Brideshead Revisited was the text. Now, you remember in that story, Sebastian Ryder, who is uh, uh, Charles Ryder, played by Jeremy Irons. It was one of Jeremy Irons' first big roles. Um, um, Charles Ryder, who I could identify with coming from his origins, sort of professional origins, goes to Oxford and meets Sebastian, who is the Lord Marchmain. Uh, his father is Laurence Olivier, who now lives in Venice. His mother is Claire Bloom who is chilly and frigid and very Catholic. And no wonder the, his father has escaped to Venice with his beautiful Italian Contessa or Signora because of the cool, frosty um, uh, Catholicism and moralism of uh, his uh, pious uh, but very brilliant uh, rather harpy-like in some respects, uh, Lady Marchmain, again played by Claire Bloom. And uh, uh, the Et in Arcadia ego, and I was in the Arcadian landscape. The chapters in Early Brideshead Revisited, which is a smashing book, have to do with the introduction of uh, Charles Ryder to a world of the Catholic aristocracy in England, especially at Oxford, which is alcohol-fueled, delightful, funny, um, wildian, gay, but not exclusively. I would call it ACDC, perhaps you might say, or uh, bisexual, but even that is only, you have to read it between the lines, but it's there, and, and uh, Charles's extraordinary sister, and uh, the fun of, of uh, driving around with uh, bottles of champagne and silver buckets and uh, um, aping, uh, aping the ways of the super-rich, but not American super-rich, rich with a kind of humor and debonair indifference. Uh, There's kind of a debonair uh, indifference that doesn't take itself too seriously. And the heroes of uh, Brides that Revisited never take themselves too seriously. Now, there is a Catholic subtext, and it finally becomes the text. Whatever's under the subtext is the text. Um, uh, the or the other way around. Whatever's on top of the subtext is the text. The real text is uh, Charles Ryder's conversion to Christianity and its Roman Catholic form through the abnegation of his uh, uh, extramarital affair with uh, um, Lord Marchmain's sister, which is uh, consummated on a, over a transatlantic uh, trip. And uh, Jane Asher plays Charles Ryder's uh, uh, lovely, but again, somewhat, acid wife whom he throws over for his friend's sister but finally throws everyone over in favor of a of a christian style of uh, sexual abstinence which the author is in fact endorsing and there's a kind of humility that i as a christian find powerful at the end of brideshead revisited but we were working with brideshead revisited and the first four or five chapters of the undergraduate life at oxford that is portrayed by waugh in that novel and we were working from that text as page grub often reminded me. It was sort of your required reading if you knew your business in the punching period of your hopes to become a member of the Phoenix Club. Now, other clubs had different ethoses and different texts and different approaches, and some we regarded as dull, others we regarded as entirely too, it was all based on Boston bloodlines, or at least it seemed so to us, and if we didn't have those Boston uh, bloodlines, forget about it. Um, others were the jocks, and there were all these different cliches, others were the artists. In my day, the Phoenix had this very artistic, brideshead resisted uh, sort of thing, together with a number of other types. Uh, some were sort of preppy lacrosse players, but mostly, and a lot of drugs uh, that were there, uh, mostly marijuana and cocaine that was going on around me, although I, I didn't, I saw it, but I didn't partake myself. 
That was just where I was. But the other thing that's interesting about the members of the Phoenix Club, and I've kept up with a number and really value these friendships more and more the older I get, is that there was a, a, a sort of an assumption of an interest and openness to sort of religion, provided it wasn't pushy. There were no conservative evangelicals in Harvard Final Clubs. I, I think there was one in the Fox Club, as I remember. I think there was one notorious exception. But there were very few conservative evangelicals because those people were just not interested in what we were interested in. And they were they were all sort of trying to convert everyone else. The word in the 30s in Harvard would have been Christers. Uh, other places you would have called them the God Squad. I met a few in the Christian Fellowship at that time. Once was invited to a function and ran out of the room. I was so undone. But that was a different time in life. But uh, a, a person of conservative evangelical interest or, or values would not have been attracted to a final club and would have considered it his or her moral duty, uh, his moral duty, not to be associated with it. And maybe he had a point, but uh, he had a point in some respects, but attitude. You you just don't want to run into ideological attitude, because the irony is that almost all of the, my fellow members of the Phoenix SK Club are now uh, uh, either churchgoers or still interested. They're either high church Episcopalians, in my case, low church Episcopalian. Um, I hoped it was refined, uh, but uh, not evangelical in the cultural sense. But what did we know at that time? Um, or Roman Catholic. Uh, again, the pull of Lady Marchmain's ethos was very strong on, on the... Uh, the practice of Roman Catholicism, many people would be slipping away on Sunday mornings or Saturday afternoons just without telling anybody and going to St. Paul's, was it? I always forget the name of the Catholic Church, which is just around the half a block away from Adam's house. But Or the, I went to Christ Church, the Episcopal Church, on Cambridge Common for the early service and would and be amazed whom I would see. Or some of us would attend over there in the very early days when Peter Gomes was assistant minister at the Memorial Church. We'd go to the Appleton Chapel. And you'd occasionally see some Harvard Final Club types at the early service um, in, uh, in uh, I know one very well to this day. He's a wonderful um, evangelical Anglican clergyman, uh, you'd see some people you were surprised to see, and sometimes some people you were really surprised to see at early morning prayers in Appleton Chapel. Uh, so religion, as it turns out, another friend of mine became very active in the vestry of his parish uh, out, uh, outside New York City, and uh, uh, people always sort of honored my interest. And uh, uh, Paige Grubb became uh, an every Sunday Organist. I think he was an organist at two different churches, possibly a Lutheran church and one an Episcopal church, but certainly a Lutheran church in his hometown. So there was uh, that was never considered negative, uh, nor was it considered uh, something prominent. But uh, there was always openness to the religion. And of course, if you've read Brideshead Revisited, no wonder uh, it couldn't be the text of a final club without there being some sort of affinity to the odd, humble and uh, uh, pre-Vatican II Catholicism of the Marchmain family, including the Laurence Olivier character who dies in the bosom of the church. Well, that's my little word on the Phoenix Club. It delights me no end and rather surprises me to the ground that all of a sudden, even on the Academy Awards the other night, may they rest in peace or may they rest in final unpeace. Nevertheless, there was a voiceover right before one of the ads of uh, the Mark Zuckerberg character, that brilliant actor who plays Mark Zuckerberg in the social network in which he says, look, I could, I have so much money now. He said, I could, I could, I could, uh, 
I could put the entire Phoenix Club in my ping pong room. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, you can get one over on anything you desire to. If uh, revanche is, uh, you know, if you want to get back Alsace-Lorraine after the Paris Commune and the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, you can do it with enough aggro and energy and smarts and intelligence. And uh, <clears throat> now uh, it's on a voiceover in the Academy Awards. And the, the, when you get the menu, of the, uh, the, the menu for the social network on the DVD, the very beautiful um, sexed-up uh, two-DVD set on both menus, the menu both for the DVD one and DVD two, the image is of the punching envelope of the Phoenix Club being placed under Eduardo Saverin's door. Now, the fact that that, which was for us second nature, but really quite kind of very much in the margins and secret, that that should be on the menu of the social network, which at one point was featured just recently on a kiosk in every single Barnes & Noble in America, uh, that is, we, we can't, I can't even take it in. That's beyond, beyond. It just makes no sense. But I'm giving you a little picture of the way the Phoenix Club was and uh, how it was and the tremendously heartwarming statement of uh, normal adolescent attempts to differentiate. And in this case, a very harmless dissidence, far more focused on, uh, on Brideshead Revisited than the late George Apley, although we knew about John Marquand, Marquand far less involved in uh, John O'Hara uh, um, and uh, John Cheever uh, than it was with... Uh, with uh, new, the Ballad of Nougate uh, Jail and De Profundis, and uh, far more oriented to Latin and Greek and the study of the classics uh, than it was to, um, to the, uh, to the uh, uh, field house or to the sculling on the Charles. And uh, the delight that I feel, the honey-colored warmth of that world uh, from the heart of the um, Chicago 7 or 11, which was all around us, uh, makes it a kind of diamond in the rough. Or in the most personal uh, memorial I would like to offer to my truly beloved old friend now in the uh, many mansions of the kingdom of God, Paige Farnsworth Grubb, this is our rhinestone in the rough. Thank you very, very much, and God bless.